Hello! And welcome to the Something Something Metaverse episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, who's also at Axios. Hello! Um, And I'm quite excited about this. My old mucker, Robin Pine Timothy, is here joining from an undisclosed location somewhere in Madrid. Robin, welcome. Thank you so much, Felix and Emily. I feel honored and privileged to be here. (laughs) Who are you, Robin? Introduce yourself. Unlike most of your other, of your illustrious guests, I am fairly ordinary I like the fact that you're getting the man in the street perspective. Um, it's not just a bunch of highfalutin types. I am uh, ex-banker, management consultant, is currently doing a stint in an undisclosed location. But most importantly for our yes. purposes, you are also a big sports fan. I am a big sports fan, but if I'm your go-to sports person... You are. That's a bit of an indictment on your sports acumen, I have to admit. I have two go-to sports people. There's you and Mina Kimes. You're the only people I know who understand sports. And I'm very happy that you're on because it's the Olympics this week. So we're going to talk about the Olympics. We're going to talk about this massive lawsuit that has been filed against the National Football League by a coach who was or was not, we don't know, um, racially discriminated against. We are also, of course, going to talk about Facebook or Meta, as they're known, and their terrible earnings report. We have a Slate Plus segment on a gold cube in Central Park, because obviously... And yeah, it's all coming up on Slate Money. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It is the Olympics this week. We are going to talk about sport because Robin is uh, my go-to person for everything I ever need to know about sport. But we're not going to start with sports because we did have the largest one-day evaporation of stock market value in the history of the universe. Um, Emily, what the hell happened at Meta? Meta, which... Can I just say, it's Facebook. I don't like calling it meta. Um, I feel like that's what caused its stock to drop, but it's not, but kind of is. Um, so 
Their shares dropped 26% on Thursday because they had bad earnings, meaning they were disappointing. Um, They lost some users. For the first time ever, like the number of Facebook users went down rather than up for the first time ever in Facebook's history. So that's like a major event. They also said they lost $10 billion in revenue because Apple's privacy changes, which we've talked about on this podcast before. So that was a bummer. Except for like, that was the weird thing, right? That the the Apple privacy changes didn't seem to hurt Alphabet, which is the other company that is named something which you don't realize what the actual company is. And then we just had Snap earnings and Snap earnings were a complete blowout. And they did amazingly well. And the stock went up by like 50% in one day. On the one hand, I don't doubt that Facebook is right, that this new um, iPhone operating system has been bad for Facebook. But if it is bad for Facebook, it seems to have been very, very targeted just at Facebook because it doesn't seem to affect anyone else. Yeah, I mean, Snap said that they had figured out how to deal with it um, when they came out with their earnings, and it doesn't seem like Facebook has. Um, I'm curious what Robin would say, but it seems like Facebook maybe is more dependent on targeting than any other uh, social media site, it's fair to say. Like Twitter wasn't as affected because Twitter doesn't do the kind of targeting Facebook does and is known for. And only like 24% of Apple iPhone users opted in to be tracked, (laughs) which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I would expect that Facebook depends much more on that than other of, of, of its big competitors. But it's still a little bit opaque to me as to why or how those decreases are spread among the different and the Facebook sort of family of apps. Oh, it's all in Facebook blue. It's all in the main headline Facebook app. WhatsApp and Instagram seem to be doing fine. Which is interesting because I, I guess I've, I've been waiting to see some impact on WhatsApp in terms of the privacy considerations, but it doesn't really seem to be impacting them in terms of people substituting away from WhatsApp to other messaging apps that are considered more private. So Mark Zuckerberg on the earnings call did say that he was seeing quite a lot of competition from Apple iMessage. He met, he mentioned iMessage, he, he, you know, singled it out for mention he definitely singled TikTok out for mention. And TikTok, of course, you have no privacy at all. It's basically a wholly owned subsidiary of the Chinese government. And you just give up all of your most private feelings and thoughts to to, to the Chinese Communist Party. And no one seems to care about that. I think one thing we have definitely learned is that while, you know, the sort of media chattering classes care a lot about privacy and a lot of there's a lot of talk about like stop using whatsapp start using signal you know you have all of this kind of thing consumer behavior when you're talking across a base of two billion people like those two billion people don't care so much about privacy that they're going to stop using whatsapp or you know move to signal or anything like that the the thing that affects Facebook and that caused this massive evaporation of market cap, which I think was $250 billion in one day, is not like some grassroots movement of people leaving the platform because they care about privacy. It was Facebook not being able to target ads to them. And, you know, so far, there are no ads on WhatsApp. So that's not even an issue on WhatsApp. 
And this is, I think, also about, I mean, Zuckerberg said um, in his comments, this is about people liking, I mean, he didn't say this, but this is about people liking TikTok a lot and using it more and Facebook's growth slowing down. People have been warning that this would happen for a really long time. And, you know, it just took something cool and new. TikTok's not even that new anymore to replace it. Like Facebook's just not going to grow like it used to. Right. I mean, and this is evidence right here. So, so this is this is the classic thing. I mean, the, the media joke is that Facebook announced it was going to pivot to video, which was like the thing that all the media companies used to do just before they died. Um, but yeah, they he he basically said, "We really care about this TikTok threat. We're going to be putting a huge amount of resources into trying to, you know, invest into this thing called Reels, which is basically the Instagram clone of TikTok. Um, we're going to really." target the 18 to 25 year olds and we're going to try and bring those people into the platform even if it means alienating the old people like you and me and he clearly wants to do to tiktok what he kind of did with snap right which was he created a clone it was called instagram stories and it did really well and it did um hurt snap for like quite a while although snap seems to be doing just fine right now like there's there's room for snapchat in the social media ecosystem, definitely. So he is worried, and he is moving into Reels, which is the TikTok clone, quite aggressively. And that is his attempt to try and get ahead of where the, you know, the kids these days are going. But also, apropos his announcement a few months ago, he's like, well, what we really have as a long-term strategy is something, something, Web3, something, Metaverse, something, which no one really understands. And that's the other thing which really jumped out at me from this earnings report, is they lost $3.3 billion in a single quarter on something, something, Metaverse, something. Like, how is it even possible to spend $3.3 billion on something which no one even knows what it is? You know, this to me is... It's the real, uh, a real, the real first shakeup of Facebook in terms of understanding where they're going to go with their business model. Because from what I understand, Reels is more difficult to monetize, and so therefore, uh, so therefore, you're talking about margin erosion anyway if you start going into that area. So you 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 you're suffering some loss in your ad revenue, you're moving into an area where you can't monetize in that way as well as your historical businesses. And then you're losing, as you say, 3.3 billion in a quarter on the new, new next thing, which is the metaverse, which no one can really explain or understand. So uh, to me, this is, there's some existential stuff going on right now. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm over dramatizing it, but it looks a little bit tricky. No, no, you're, you're not over-dramatizing at all. You're absolutely right. Reels is hard to manage. I can tell you, since I'm in Ireland right now, and I have a very low-key, minor TikTok addiction, it's not. It's nothing serious, I, you know. I, <laughs> but I, I've been in Ireland for, um, for a month, and I have been dipping in and out of TikTok over that time. And over the course of that month, I have seen exactly zero ads on TikTok. Um, you know, TikTok is not worth or bite dance. I see ads on TikTok, on TikTok all the time. But you're not in Ireland. Uh, uh okay. So Targeting. That was a clarifying question, actually. <laughs> not just arguing. 
Okay, so they they haven't monetized in Ireland. So like ByteDance is is worth five hundred billion dollars or whatever it is these days, not because it has amazing revenue growth, but because it just has amazing user growth, and people are re- relatively confident that at some point they'll be able to monetize all these users. But Facebook, especially Instagram has like the greatest ad unit in the history of technology. No one has been able to create an ad unit quite as amazing as the Instagram ad unit. And if they're forced to then put more emphasis on things like stories and reels for user growth, or even WhatsApp for that matter, that means that their much vaunted ARPU it is, it has to come down. I was going to say, it just it feels like Facebook isn't... The meta bet is not wasn't the right isn't the right bet for Facebook to make because user growth is slowing down. They're not like the cool thing anymore. They're not the social network where everyone wants to be. They need to have something more steady that produces reliable income for them. Like I'm thinking about Microsoft by comparison. Like Microsoft was used to be like the cool company, like Facebook was. And um, instead of building some new cool thing like the metaverse, they built a cloud computing business that generates tons and tons and tons of money. Like that seems like the thing you want to do, not go off on like some boondoggle in the metaverse and and like lose billions of dollars a quarter. Right. And I think I, I think Google actually does did this very interestingly, right? So so Microsoft and Amazon could go into like enterprise software sales and make an absolute fortune. Google didn't kind of it's it's been dipping its toe into enterprise software sales and it's doing okay, you know, as you and I know, Emily, like all of Axios runs on Google Suite or whatever they're calling it this week. But their whole like we are going to make big bets on random things like self-driving cars that are going to change the world, they always say, well, you know, that's they they put it in their um in their annual reports or their quarterly reports under something called other bets. It's like we have these other bets. They're off to one side, and we really hope that they work out. And if they do work out, they could be worth trillions of dollars. But right now, they're other bets. And the metaverse thing that Facebook is doing really, to me, feels like an other bet. It feels like Facebook has enough money to be able to throw $3 billion a quarter at this and just see if it works. But it's way too early for Facebook to say, this is the future of our company, because they just don't know that. Yeah, it's a wild bet to pivot to. But isn't that just the point, though, that we think that maybe we are rational beings, but we are also, we are not the exalted class like Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. We don't have the vision that they do. So what we think of as a wild <laughs> bet, they think of as a sure thing, because they know that they have the technology and they have the resources and they have the capability to create something extraordinary that the world has never seen. But they've shown us, and it's not extraordinary, <laughs> well, and not no yet. one wants it. Not yet. It's, it's not, not there, there yet. yet. It just doesn't seem, you got to make more bets than one. And I mean, I know Mark Zuckerberg is like a billionaire, and he was smart, and he created Facebook, and that's great. People love it, obviously. But like, I'm not convinced he's got another big idea, because all of Facebook's success since Facebook was founded, has been updating to make sure it can capture mobile, hiring Sheryl Sandberg, who knows how to do advertising, buying other companies, ripping off products like Snap, um, 
none of that. I mean, all of that is very smart business, but it's not like genius. They, they haven't innovated. There, there's yeah. no like innovation you can point to from within Facebook, basically since the idea. That's, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I guess we're talking about the Olympics now. Is that what's happening? Go ahead well, and talk about it. I, yeah, it's, the, the, it's <laughs> a big deal, right? I mean, there yeah, is actually a metaverse. There is a metaverse connection too. The, the whole idea of the metaverse is that it's based on cryptocurrency somehow. This is something which I don't entirely understand, but um, cryptocurrency is deeply embedded in the, in the metaverse. And apparently... Cryptocurrency is deeply embedded in the Olympics. This is the Chinese Communist Party's grand coming out party for the ECNY, the the um, their central bank digital currency that they have. And if you want to buy things in and around the Olympics, then you use digital renminbi that is sitting on your phone. And so it looks like maybe China got there before Facebook in terms of actually being able to buy things with digital currency. I don't know if that is remotely interesting you to, to you robin what's interesting to you about these olympics well not a whole lot at the moment i have to admit <laughs> um and i'll tell you why i'll tell you why because i'm in europe right now and i'm as felix would could attest i'm i'm an aficionado of european football as in soccer there's just so much going on in terms of sports the european championships for national teams, which occurs every four years, were supposed to take place in 2020. Because of COVID, they took place in 2021. That was last summer. You have all the European leagues are in full swing. You have the African Cup of Nations going on, which is Africa's version of the European Championships. You've got the World Cup coming up in Qatar at the end of this year. And a bunch of, you know, Latin American competitions, um, World Cup qualifying, and then in, you throw into the mix the Beijing Olympics. Oh, not to mention the the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl is coming up, and all of the all of the, the the fall and winter sports in the U.S. are still going strong in full swing, and it's kind of like, yeah, also now the Winter Olympics. So I'm a little bit underwhelmed at the moment, but I know that once we start, you know, in my feed starts filling up with the drama, the the heart warming stories and the heart-wrenching stories and you're like oh that guy who is a speed skater from Romania and look at what he's gone through and oh my god he won a silver medal and you know so I'm expecting that to come at any moment but in the meantime yeah I haven't focused on it too much 
on the digital currency point, I, I, I'm a little bit impressed, I think, with China's kind of softly, softly approach. It, it just seems very rational in the way that they, they, they are rolling it out in sort of test markets and small, you know, it's, it seems very reasonable and rational. Uh, they're not making a, they're not taking huge risks on it. And I find that impressive. I'm not sure why I do, but I, I find it a bit impressive. I would say that. And so the Olympics, it'll be interesting to see the numbers. Uh, I mean, it's still a f- tiny fraction of, of, of payments, but it'll be interesting to see in, in a few weeks what, uh, what results come out of that experiment. I think the vibe is the Olympics now in Beijing is kind of like a COVID bummer, another COVID bummer for us to not enjoy, but there's no real audience there because of COVID restrictions. It's very locked down. So that's not going to be great for this digital currency to kind of take off. There's just going to be less going on and make it sort of harder to get to really get used. Um, So I wonder about that. But also I wanted to ask Felix, can't the Chinese just like force everyone to use their digital currency? Like, what are they waiting for? So, I mean, that's the big question. I mean, like the, the really big question overhanging these Olympics is there were those questions about whether there should be boycotts. Um, there's a Uyghur genocide going on. There's like, you know, uh, Chinese tennis players getting disappeared. Um, there's huge uh, pressure that the Chinese put onto like the basketball teams and players in the United States about what they can and can't say about China. Um, the China is, is absolutely seeking to exercise an absolutely enormous amount of control over absolutely everyone and absolutely everything, certainly within its own borders. And it feels like it is just very opposed to what we kind of think of as the olympic ideals when the olympic ideals are anything other than ioc corruption so um so like i don't know if like and plus like the whole idea that beijing is a ski town like no it's not the whole thing just feels very odd and very political in a way that doesn't feel good to me yeah and the polling i think i think axios had an item today but like Americans are just like meh on the Olympics more than ever in Beijing, partly because of the politics. I think there's been so much coverage. Of but that there's also been a long term secular decline in the degree to which Americans care about the Olympics anywhere. You know, people are like, oh, it's the time zone. And then it happens in Rio and it's still got like record low ratings. And everyone's like, oh, I guess it wasn't the time zone um, that, that somehow like team sports seem to have just conquered the world and like individual competition just isn't as um compelling anymore and remember we just had the tokyo olympics last summer so that's another you know it's a it's 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 really quite soon to have an you know it's just another huge international sporting event during covid reduced capacity as as emily said it's uh it's a bit meh it really is sad but but uh yeah that's where we are but I, but actually, but Emily, you did you did talk about why you did say why doesn't China just kind of force everyone to use this currency, and and he dodged that. Well, no, the answer was that they absolutely can, and that's why I'm impressed by their approach because I'm wondering why it is that they are taking such a rational, mod, you know, moderate approach to this, um, and I'm I'm intrigued by that. 
give, given their history? I think it's because they have first mover advantage. Um, it is by far the most used and most fully built out digital currency in the world. They're not in any particular rush. They, you know, they're not, they're already first, but if they were, but they're not even trying to necessarily be first. They want to get this right. And they they aren't run by Mark Zuckerberg types who are like, I am going to, I, I have seen the future and I know exactly what it is and I'm going to drive to this future. They're, they're you know, they, they have, they're the largest country in the world and they roll things out slowly and see what the unintended consequences are and they iterate. And we've seen this in in terms of the um, the big tech giants in China, right? There was a long time when they were like, "Yeah, we we want you to create these world beating companies and go out and make billions of dollars." And and China is fantastic. And then at some point they were like, "Yeah, no, actually that's not so good for China, and we don't want so many billionaires, and we are going to crack down on U.S. listings, and we're going to." consolidate more control in in the central government rather than allowing private um entrepreneurs to to have power in society and they they're very good at like balancing things and i i i don't see them as sort of trying to 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 coin a phrase come up with a great leap forward when it comes to digital currencies yeah and neither is the united states we should add i think it was two weeks ago the federal reserve put out it's like I guess, long-awaited paper on um, U.S. digital currency. And the paper basically, I've never seen the the phrase pros and cons like in a research paper. I, I can't remember ever having seen it before, but the paper starts by saying like, we're going to lay out the pros and cons and we're not taking a position. So a signal that they're moving extremely slowly and like waiting on Congress to do something. Um, but I think it would behoove the United States to like step it up and release a digital currency now well the the cons are clear and the and the cons for both china and the united states are the same and in fact they're bigger for china the cons are about the banks right china has a bunch of banks with a bunch of loans and those loans are looking a bit dodgy we've talked about evergrande on this show um the, the property market in china is cooling down rapidly and possibly even shrinking and you know just like any country if you know it is absolutely vital to China that it manages to look after its banking sector and doesn't have some kind of bank collapse. Um, the Federal Reserve, you know, has this massive macroprudential um, job to make sure that the banking sector is healthy and it is the top regulator of all banks. And it really takes that very seriously. And the way that banks fund their loans is by taking in deposits, right? You put you you leave your money at the bank, it takes those deposits, they do this, you know, fractional reserve banking and maturity transformation, and they take those that money and they lend it out as loans. If people don't need to keep their money on deposit at banks because they can just hold a central bank digital currency instead then that is a real potential problem for the banks. And no central bank in the world wants to wants to create a real potential problem for banks. The so there's talk about maybe banks can issue their own central, you know, digital dollars or something, rather than just getting them directly from the central bank so that you keep that kind of intermediation. No one exactly knows how that works. But the Chinese one is not issued by banks. It's issued by the Chinese central bank, by the Chinese government. And so like if you had all of China just suddenly moving to a 
the digital yuan tomorrow, that would be absolutely terrible for the Chinese banking system, which would lose all of its deposit base. And that in turn would like implode the Chinese economy. So there's lots of good reasons why you want, wouldn't want to go too fast on this. Yeah, that was my my one question under US under digital coin US was just like banks. <laughs> so I didn't even have to ask it. That was great. Basically, a digital currency could undermine the whole US banking system. Is that what you kind of just said, Felix? Yeah. 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 Well, any banking system. It doesn't even need to be the American one. And at first you're like, "Oh, that would be great. Big banks, boo." But like we need them to make loans and whatnot, right? <laughs> <laughs> we need them for some things, yes. They they have a lot of liabilities, right? So, you know, we don't want them to go bust because we know what a banking crisis looks like and it's very unpleasant. We kind of went through one of those, almost went through one of those in 2008 and we would really really like to not have to go through one of those again. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The Olympics are boring, but there's something which isn't boring. Something, something, American football, something. Yes, the NFL. You might have heard there's been a lawsuit. Earlier this week on Wednesday, Brian Flores, who was recently fired from his job as head coach of the Miami Dolphins, filed a really explosive lawsuit against the NFL, the Dolphins, the Giants, and the Broncos, um, essentially alleging race discrimination, seeking class action status, and making some really like explosive claims um, about how he was treated by the Dolphins and by the league. Um, 
there was a great screenshot of a text message, which is always wonderful in a lawsuit. You always want a screenshot of a text message in a lawsuit. But basically, Flores was interviewing um, for a job as head coach of the Giants. And um, it was three days before his interview was to take place. And he gets a text from Bill Belichick, who Felix probably knows is like a big fancy coach. No, Uh, from the Patriots. He's like a very winning coach. So he texts Brian Flores and he's like, mazel tov. He doesn't say mazel tov. Congrats, whatever. I heard you're getting the job. And Brian Flores is like, do you mean the other guy, Brian Dable? Because there's a a Brian mix-up. Clearly Belichick had texted the wrong Brian. And, And Belichick's like, oh, whoops. I guess it's Brian Dable getting the job. And Flores was like, I haven't even interviewed yet. This is such a scam. And I think I've talked about before the NFL has this Rooney rule. Um, meant um, it, the Basically, the rule is you have to inter- interview at least one diverse candidate for a head coaching position. Um, and it was instituted uh, like in 2003 because they were being threatened with a racial discrimination lawsuit. Um, but... Everyone has kind of thought, well, it must be a scam because there's only, like right now, for example, there's only one black head coach in the NFL. So, like, this rule doesn't seem to work. Like, there's a scam afoot. And so the Flores lawsuit kind of gives this evidence of the scam, right? Like, he's being interviewed for a job, but they already know who's taking the job. So it's kind of a joke, right? Um, We should say the NFL denies, everyone denies, the Giants say he was in consideration up to the to the nine, 90th hour, 11th hour, whatever that phrase is. Um, but anyway, it was super explosive, and there's other, yeah, there's other details too. Robin, I'm curious what you make of all this. First of all, it's interesting to note that all of this was instigated by one gentleman of a certain age and some bad texting. So... <laughs> He, I, I suspect that Bill Belichick, you know, both of these men were one-time assistants to Bill Belichick. And of course, he's the greatest coach in NFL history. If you had a sort of a family tree of his, of his uh, coordinators and coaches who have gone on to, um, to coach other teams, it's, it's pretty extensive. So I suspect that Bill had in his phone book, uh, Coach Brian and then Brian, parentheses, coach, you know? <laughs> and so he thought he was coaching, he thought he was texting Brian Flores, and of course he was te- texting, um, he thought he was texting Brian Dable, and instead he texted Brian Flores. I think what sticks out to me is, first of all, how brave Brian Flores is, because this is, well, if we go by historical stand, uh, standards, this is a career killer for him. He's still a young man. He's, uh, he's an, by all accounts, an excellent human being. People love him. Players love working for him, uh, playing for him. He commands a huge amount of respect. Um, he's worked his way up for the last couple of decades. And he has been a very good coach. I mean, he coached the Miami Dolphins, who have been an awful team for a couple of decades. He, you know, they've been to the playoffs twice in 20 years. He coached them for three seasons, and he coached them to winning winning records in the last two seasons, which is the first time that's happened in 20 years, right? And then he gets fired. Now, this speaks to a couple of things. One is that black coaches are, it's generally accepted that they have shorter tenures 
in the NFL than white coaches. That's number one. Number two, if and when they do get fired, um, which is inevitable, it's much more difficult for them to get a second, a second opportunity. And thirdly, the Rooney Rule, as Emily says, instituted in 2003 and upgraded, by the way, in 2020 to give it more teeth. Interestingly, when the Rooney Rule, Rooney Rule was implemented, there were three black coaches in the NFL. And 20 years later, there are, there's one. So there is a sense of frustration uh, among the black coaching fraternity that is palpable and has been growing. And this situation, I think, was the proverbial straw. I can see the sort of the anger and the resentment as in all of these black coaches, it's a, it's a, it's a merry-go-round. They get interviewed every year for the, every job. They never actually, well, not that they never get the jobs, but they rarely get the jobs. And they know that it's all for show. And one of the ways that they know this is, well, situations like this are pretty stark, but they go to a, an interview for a head coaching position and the owner of the team doesn't even bother to show up, which happens all the time and they all know about it. And of course, this is an open secret in the right circles. So I think that people are just very, very fed up, but everybody is really worried about their prospects. And Brian has stepped out into this void in a very brave and selfless way. And here we are. Now, what's for the NFL, they're in a very difficult position. The NFL itself as an organization, as opposed to the owners of the NFL teams, they are actually trying to make a change in this area. But the NFL is owned by the owners and they have very little impact on what the owners can actually do. So if you ask them offline, off the record, what they think, they'll say, the owners are the ones who are doing this we are actually trying to move them in a certain direction that they just won't move. Are there any black owners in the NFL? There are no black owners in the NFL. There, there are two minority owners in the NFL. I wanted to talk about the ownership too, because that is super interesting. First fun fact is that the owner of the Miami Dolphins is Steve Ross, who's like a big real estate mogul. Um, and the allegations against him in the suit are pretty wild. For example, Brian Flores says that billionaire mogul Steve Ross offered to give him $100,000 every time he lost a game because he wanted to get the team in position for the number one draft pick. So he didn't actually want Brian Flores to win games and would pay him not to win them. And there's some like dodgy meeting on a yacht, but it's just such a- Is that allowed or not? Is that not allowed? The dodgy meeting on the yacht? You like getting a bonus for losing games? No, that's not allowed. And that, um, that could wind up, Dan Primick had a good piece, like that could- wind up being really bad for Steve Ross. I mean, he's denied it, um, but he could maybe lose his ownership of the game, like uh, depending on how it goes, which could be a way to get more um, owners of color maybe into the NFL. The uh, The barrier to entry is it's really hard to buy an NFL team. You have to be like, you know, really, really rich. And most rich people are white, we can say. You know, let's say that you're you're watching the, the World Cup in football and that is the is the opening round and you've won your first two games and for reasons to do with the the draw you actually want to lose the third game rather than win the third game because it will get you a, a better like um prospect of you know meeting weaker teams going forwards like everyone understands that and the 
teams play a bunch of like not very good players, they're second tier players, and often they lose, and they're like, oh well, I guess we lost. And it's it's an understood part of like the the broader strategy of competing on a you know in a repeat game where you know you're going to have to compete next year and the year after. So like, where do you draw the line? Surely you you have to be able to do things like I'm not going to play my very best players in a game that I don't particularly want to win, right? It's an interesting point, Felix, but there, there are two things about that. First of all, that scenario that you described doesn't really exist in the NFL. In the NFL, you, you have to play every game to win, essentially. Okay, towards the end of the season, if you've, as you say, if you've already locked in your playoff spot and you want to risk, you don't want to risk injuries, you may rest players. However, and this is the big issue, um, when it comes to Mr. Ross and his potential uh, liability. A huge part of the NFL revenue right now, they are encouraging betting on football games. And in a 17-game season and the playoffs, there's, other than the odd game at the end of the season for specific teams, and there weren't that many of those games, by the way, this, uh, this, this year, bettors expect that teams are going to be out there trying to win. And if you are, you know, like a ton of money is being put on these games and the, the fix is in, that's a real problem. That's number one. Number two, another coach, Hugh Jackson, another black coach who was the coach of the Cleveland, Cleveland Browns up to a few years ago, uh, a few years ago, he has also talked about being paid to tank games. Now, what's interesting is that Certainly no white coach has come out and said this, uh, certainly not openly. And the other aspect is, is it that black coaches are the only ones who are being asked to tank games because you would never ask a white coach to do it and therefore you are now hurting the reputation and the, for, you know, the future prospects of these black coaches. So there are, all, there are many layers to this that are very interesting and that, as I said, fuel a lot of resentment in the black coaching community. So that's interesting, though, the idea that, like, the offer to pay 100 grand to throw a game is, like, that's a racially tinged offer right there. It could be. We don't know yet. And, and, and the lawsuit itself, um, so it's against the NFL, it's against those three specific owners, but it's also against all of the owners. It is a class action suit, but, you know, whether or not this, will, this suit will even go forward uh, and certainly any chance of, of, of long-term success is questionable at best. First of all, maybe no one would want to join the class action. And for it to be recognized as a class action, I think is a, is a fairly high legal bird, uh, a hurdle, and they may not get there. However, as Emily alluded earlier, there are some salacious details here. And the NFL has, has seen some fairly unpleasant behavior by owners and coaches and people in, in positions of power within, within the NFL uh, recently. Um, John Gruden, who was the coach um, of the Las Vegas Raiders, it's hard for me not to call them the Oakland Raiders, but was, you know, some, some had an email trail with some really vicious uh, racist and homophobic and misogynistic um, uh, material that was circulating um, uh, uh, among a group of fairly illustrious um, folks in that in that realm, 
you know, you've got the Washington football team, now known as the Washington Commanders, not the greatest name in the history oh, of man. sports. Why? But what is that name? Just no, I, lo I love the idea of the Washington what? Commies. I, I think that's, that's going to be awesome. And that's exactly what they will be called, Felix, because the, e every name is, every name that's more than two syllables is... T tell me, tell me, tell me that their team color is red. Tell me they're the red Commies. They, they are, well, it's maroon, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, th that, that team, Dan Snyder, the owner of that team is, uh, well, he's, let's just say, that whole organization has been sort of under investigation for what feels like a decade. A lot of misogynistic uh, and just generally unpleasant behavior. And also, as Emily also mentioned, you know, these teams are worth a lot of money. You know, the average value of an NFL franchise is $3.5 billion, the lowest that the, the, the cheapest one, on, if you wanted to buy, would be over $2 billion. And they make a lot of money. So, you know, the NFL makes $10 billion a year. So 32 teams. So there's a lot going on there that is at risk. And if this, this lawsuit may not come to fruition, but just getting to discovery could be just, make for some very unhappy people in high places. Bring on more text messages. Oh, there's a lot of, there are a lot of text messages, even in the John Gruden situation. They released a bunch of text messages, but the vast majority were never released. If they come out in this, along with 31 other teams, I mean, it's, it's, it can get very, 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 very ugly. I want to ask Emily though, just like broadening it out a little bit from the NFL. I, this is, this is, your area of expertise, not mine. I half remember this, but like Rooney rule equivalent things. Like, is there any evidence that they work? Because in, in the back of my head, I have this, this statistic that if you have three or four men up for a job and one woman, the chance of the woman getting the job is basically zero. Like if there's, if you have three people who look one way and then one person who looks another way and they're all up for the same job, the one person who stands out will never get that job. And you need like more than one. Otherwise, these kind of rules just have no utility. Yeah, actually, I was curious about that because the Rooney rule, I mean, the it started in the NFL, but it spread like wildfire <laughs> among big companies um, uh, back in like the 2015s and 16s when tech companies were getting um, criticized all the time for a lack of diversity. Pinterest, Facebook, everyone was like, well, we're going to do the Rooney rule. Everything's going to be great. Um, and then around that time, this researcher, Stephanie Johnson in Colorado, uh, did this survey that or study that you're talking about, Felix, where she found like, if you have one diverse candidate on an all white uh, slate, it doesn't matter. They never get hired. So then a lot of companies, you know, they've sort of like evolved beyond the Rooney rule. So I called up Stephanie this week and she was like what's happening now is a lot of boards really want to actually hire women um, and men of color um, so that their slates aren't just like one candidate like a la the Rooney rule they bring in a fully diverse slate of candidates so they actually are hiring um, you know non-white men for board seats and if you look at the data it's looking it's looking better so companies have evolved beyond this rule but the NFL clearly has not well, one of this is another thing is that you say companies have evolved, and what you mean is public companies have evolved. And public companies um, do tend to be much, much better on diversity metrics than private companies. Um, and 
all NFT, all NFL teams are private companies, you know, Green Bay Packers notwithstanding. Um, they, you know, they, 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 and they're, what's more, they're family owned private companies. Um, you know, and family owned companies, private companies are famous for being like the last place where you find, you know, the all male boards and all of the rest of it because they don't answer to anyone else. They don't have that that public accountability that public companies do. Unless people think I'm like letting public companies, I'm giving them too much credit. I shouldn't give them too much credit because if you look at the Fortune 500, there's still v- almost no black CEOs. There's only been 19 in the 67-year history of the Fortune 500. I mean, they have a lot, there's still a lot of evolution that needs to take place. So, so I just want to make that clear. Including including Silicon Valley, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where there's been a lot of sturm und drang about it, but in reality, not much has changed. So, and, and, and by the way, just, just one last thing. In, in contrast to the NBA, both, both leagues have about 70%, 70% of their players are black. Um, coaching, coaches in the, in the NBA, at, it, at their peak, black coaches represented 48% of the coaches in the, in the NBA. Um, and that's, you know, like even today, it's, I think it's 13 out of 30 coaches in the NBA are black. And it's just, the contrast is just, it's remarkable. And it speaks volumes as to the why those two leagues are so different. Okay, I think it's time for a numbers round. Um, Emily, do you have a number? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, my number. Yeah, my number is three hundred. That is the number of snow resorts built in China since twenty fifteen, um, up from eleven prior to that. Because the country was like, we're going to do this right. We're going to have the Winter Olympics, and you're all going to learn how to ski. <laughs> and so, you know, it built a bunch of snow resorts and a bunch of ice skating rinks. And I hope the Chinese like skiing now. <laughs> <laughs> My number is 23%, which is uh, earnings season number, and it's PayPal. And it's a very clever, like, double number. I've never done a a double number, which is the same number before. 23% is the amount that PayPal's payments volume rose in the fourth quarter. It just came out with its fourth quarter earnings. And its fourth quarter payments volume, transaction volume, was up 23%. And as a result of this 23% rise in transactions volume, the PayPal stock price fell by 23%. Why? I don't understand, because, Felix. Because if you grow your transactions by 23%, that's just really disappointing. And so we're going to punish you by lopping 23% off your stock raise. Okay. It must have just been contagion from all the other tech stocks that did bad this week. Except for the ones that did well. Like Amazon went, did really well. <laughs> Except for the well, ones Amazon, that did well. I mean, it's a and Snap. Uh, Robin. My, my, I thought that my number would be the lowest number. So Emily, well done. Um, my number is $50,000 and I call it a gateway number because it's the amount of money that 19 year old Jack Sweeney, who is a college student and at the university of central Florida, I believe, uh, demanded from Elon Musk to stop making publicly available the real time tracking of his private jet. So 
he was making, he was tracking Elon Musk's private jet and had it online for anyone to see in real time at all time, 24 hours a day, uh, based on publicly available information. Elon Musk reached out to him to say, you've got to stop this. It puts me at risk. Um, he said, well, how much will you give me? Elon Musk said, I'll give you, you know, $5,000. He considered it and said, how about 50000 and maybe a job as an intern. I just think that this is remarkable. This is a guy who is worth, well, depending on the day, about a couple hundred billion dollars. He flies in a Gulfstream 650 that's worth about 65 or 70 million dollars. And this college kid is trying to hold him for ransom for 50,000. And if you tried to tell this story 20 years ago to yourself, 20, just think about how <laughs> ridiculous it would sound. That some guy Wait, so is, is so what was so what's the upshot? Elon Musk decided yeah. that he didn't really think it was appropriate that he should have oh. be forced to pay for his, someone to do the right thing and cut off negotiations and blocked him on Twitter. So, but the website is still up. The website is still up. He also says that he's also tracking Jeff Bezos and Drake and Bill Gates. <laughs> so if 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 Jeff Bezos, if if those four people's private jets all wind up in the same place at the same time, <laughs> you know that that's like <laughs> that's that's the you know the Zionist conspiracy right there. And he's been offered uh, he's been offered jobs by uh, private jet charter services, you know, so <laughs> as as a programmer. So I just think it's it's just it's such a story of our times that yeah, that's my number. Brilliant. Thank you, Robin. It's been awesome having you on the show. Thank you for calling in from Madrid, Spain. No one was supposed to know where I was, Felix. Oh, shit. For, thank you for calling in from your undisclosed location <laughs> somewhere in Southern Europe. Somewhere in the world, Felix. Somewhere in the world. Like Elon Musk. Um, I don't need people tracking me. <laughs> I, I mean, I only knew that you were in Madrid because I tracked your private jet. Yeah, well, it is, you yeah, know. I got to do something about that. But yeah, it's been great having you on the show. We're going to have a Slate Plus segment on the Gold Cube because, of course, we are. Thanks for listening. Thanks for emailing us, sleepmoney at slate.com. And thanks to Shayna Roth for putting this show together. We'll be back next week with even more Slate Money. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.